All right. Welcome to episode 91 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Michael Sherman. He's a science writer, historian of science, founder of the Skeptic Society, and editor-in-chief of its magazine Skeptic, which is largely devoted to investigating pseudoscientific and supernatural claims. He's written many books, the latest of which is called Giving the Devil His Due, Reflections of a Scientific Humanist, and he's the host of the largely popular podcast, The Michael Shermer Show. Welcome, Michael. Hi, boys. Thanks for having me. Thanks so Thanks much for, for being on. on. I forget, it's, where are you? Oh, wow. So we are in Brooklyn, New York. Yeah. Oh, oh, cool. All right. That's yeah. right. My daughter lives in Brooklyn, New York. How about that? Oh, Small awesome. World. Where? Where? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't have the address in my head. I forget <laughs> where. I, don't, I know you have yeah. different neighborhoods. I just don't remember what they are. But yeah, no, <laughs> I love Brooklyn. And I did a I did a live show there with Neil deGrasse Tyson a couple of years ago at there's oh. so, what's the theater? The King's Theater or something? There's a yes. King's Theater there. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that was really fun. Yeah, wow, that was that's really awesome. fun. How long ago was that? Let's see. That was um I think in 2018. Whoopi Goldberg was the you know kind of guest celebrity star, mm-hmm. given that I'm not really a celebrity. <laughs> and uh, there were a couple other people, comedian, you know, Neil, he likes to have fun with his his shows. So uh it was fun. It was good. Yeah. That's, no, that's very that, humble. You know, it's like three. It was like 3,000 people there. They're mostly there to see Neil, I, I think. <laughs> yeah, we, we caught the show that you did with him about your book. That was really great. Oh, okay. Oh, you saw that. Okay, great. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and on Rogan. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I think you're being humble if you're saying you're not a celebrity. Yeah, you have a really sure. solid track record, especially well, the recent. I, I, I live in Southern California. I live in Santa Barbara. And, you know, uh, fame here means, uh, you know, you just need one name Oprah. Yeah. <laughs> the Royals. <laughs> The Royals are here, Harry and Megan and little Archie, you see, and uh, Kevin Costner, you know, these yeah. are real celebrities. I'm, I, I just walk around and ride my bike around. No one even notices. <laughs> I hear you. All right. So to jump into it, I guess, um, to, I know this is going to be a kind of a rudimentary question, but I still think it's worth kind of exploring. Mm-hmm. Um, how do people believe and why do people believe in anything to begin with, right? Before we even get into the conspiracy and the pseudoscience. Oh, right. Well, so, um, you know, belief begins with just understanding something about the world, learning, just connecting A to B, uh, you know, just causally connected. And, you know, and, and the brain tries to figure out, are, are, is, are, is A really causally connected to B or is it not? So yeah. depending on where you want to start, I mean, we can start with David Hume and his definition of causality is constant conjunction. So A happens, then B, A happens, B, A, B, A, B. And at some point, and it doesn't take many trials, the brain makes a connection that, you know, the rat learns when he presses the bar and the pellet comes down that the bar press is associated with the food. So now the bar press becomes like food. It's rewarding. Or, you know, the dog salivates when, when you, you ring the bell and you give him some food and he salivates, you know, classical conditioning. So mm-hmm. that's A connected to B and that's called association learning. Now, as Hume pointed out, um, that, 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 that may be the case every swan you've ever seen is white. So you assume all swans are white, but in fact, um, through with induction, you can't make definitive conclusions because there might be a black swan somewhere. In fact, there are black swans in Australia. Right. And, um, or or say, and then he uses this example from Canterbury tales, 
of this rooster, tail of this rooster who was kind of humanized, uh, who thought that his crowing caused the sun to rise every morning because every t- every morning he 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 crows and the sun comes up. And but of course, you know, Hume's point is constant conjunction doesn't always mean a causal connection. Mm-hmm. And so his second definition of causality was uh, counterfactual causality. You take A out of the formula and if B happens anyway, then it wasn't A in the first place that caused it. It was something else. In right. this case, A was just a proxy for the sunrise. The sunrise is actually calling, causing the roaster, rooster to, to crow, not vice versa. Yep. Anyway, so, but, but my point of that is, is that, you know, we're not, we're not that good at determining causality based on anecdotal thinking like that, just classical learning, association learning, because oftentimes A is, has no connection to B at all. You hear a rustle in the grass, is it a dangerous predator or is it just the wind? In my thought experiment in the believing brain, I, I pointed out that you can make one of two errors. You can, uh, you can make a type one error where you think that, um, that, the, uh, that the rustle in the grass is, 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 the, is the wind and so you ignore it, or you make a type two error, uh, well, sorry, I flipped that, where you, you assume the rustling grass is just the wind, but it turns out it's a dangerous predator. That's a type mm-hmm. two error. Yep. That's a much costlier error to make. So it, it actually pays to assume that A is always connected to B just in case, if, if it's a dangerous threat in that case. And, um, and so we tend to leap to causal connections between things that happen, you know, the, the parent gets their kid vaccinated and then the kid is diagnosed with autism a, a month right. later or whatever. And they think, oh, well, that was the thing I just did before that. Or you take the homeopathic remedy and your headache goes away. Or you do, you know, take the extract of seaweed and the tumor goes into remission. Right. We just automatically go to that, which is why we need science because, you know, the tools of science to, uh, you know, actually run a kind of counterfactual. You know, let's have a control group and a placebo group uh, instead of just the treatment group, because that way we can employ Hume's counterfactual causality. Let's take AA out for this group and have no treatment to see what happens. And then with this other group, we give them something and they don't know what it is. That's the placebo group and, and so on. And then we just see what happens. And so that, of course, that's the randomized controlled trial. But that took centuries for people to figure out that they need to, you know, smart people, philosophers, natural scientists right. to figure out we got to do something like that or else we're not, not going to really know if something's what the cause of something is. So yeah. belief then builds on that. You start with just making connections and then forming uh, kind of layers on top of that, uh, it, you know, cognitively. And with language, we put on, um, you know, linguistic, uh, you know, words and concepts and constructs to build a, an entire belief system. So something like religion, which is a huge word, just begins with this idea, you know, kind of a supernatural, superstitious connection between what I think is going on in the world and what's causing that. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's there's a God behind every event that happens. You know, nothing happens by chance. A mm-hmm. lot of believers think, you know, everything happens for a reason. You know, a lot of believers think, and so they the sense is that you know somebody's back up there pulling the strings, making things happen. It it, it kind of feels like that. And uh, so the appeal to conspiracy theories is it's the same thing, right? It, it isn't randomness. It, it isn't the complex systems that kind of grind along and, you know, there's 20 different variables and who knows what 
the real cause is gas prices go up or down or, or, you know, revolutions happen or the economy is, is tanking or it's it, it going up and, and, you know, people can't figure out why it's easier to just think, well, there's 12 guys in, in London called the Illuminati and they're running the world, yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, so that's all tied up together. Why do you think that people are so afraid of randomness? So why is it so hard? Do you think that for them to accept that sort of there are these kind of, it's, I guess, this hodgepodge of sort of activities going on in the world, and most of them don't actually have like, let's say, a clear cut thread running through them? Yes, it's not that people are afraid of randomness. We just don't intuitively understand it or grasp it. It's not mm -hmm. natural. Um, so uh, lots of examples of this, like when the iPod first came out, they had a a, a random feature on it, uh, a shuffle, so-called mm -hmm. iPod right. shuffle. So, and and customers complained to Apple saying, you know, this this feature isn't random. These certain songs keep coming up over and over more often than other songs that oh, never right. seem to come up. Well, that's actual randomness. You know, clustering of uh, of, of data points like that is randomness. And um, you know, the stars in the sky forming constellations. That's actually what randomness looks like. If every star was perfectly distributed with the same amount of distance between them, so you'd have this kind of dot pattern in the sky that was just, you know, boringly homogeneous, uh, there'd be no constellations, but that would not be randomness. Mm -hmm. uh, Steve Gould once wrote an essay about these glow, the glow worms of Australia in this cave in Australia, where by, by the, the forces of nature and how they operate for getting food, these worms are hanging from these caves and they glow because it's dark inside, but the, the, the worms are all perfectly spaced apart because this is how they gather food. And, mm. you know, it's a maximum competition, minimum competition. So everybody gets the same amount of food, whatever that is. Mm. But so he, Gould's point was that uh, you're in this dark cave and all you see are these points of light like stars in the sky, but they don't, they don't form any constellations because they're perfectly spaced. Mm. That's not random, that's natural mm. selection. Stars are random. Okay, so my point is that, you know, we're used to thinking of, of, um, of clusters and patterns as being random, but that's not randomness. Randomness is this, this other thing that happens. And there's really not much in our evolved psychology to, to tell us why we would understand that. You know, the law of large numbers, you know, if you have 300 million Americans, adult Americans doing stuff every day, and if 0.001% are psychopaths or, or, or rapists or killers or genocidal maniacs or rioters or whatever, you're going to have enough to fill the evening news. Yeah. So people feel like there's some kind of pattern. You know, if you have three or four uh, police shootings or mass school shootings in a month or two months and, you know, the, the country erupts into, you know, just this kind of cultural uh, angst about what, what's going on here. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. There's, there's a pattern. Well, hang on. Maybe there's a pattern. Maybe there's not. You know, school shootings are terrible, but uh, and there's been a little increase over the decades. But you know, nothing that can't be explained by just more guns and more crazy people. More people, so there's a, a small percentage of crazy people goes up in terms of the raw numbers. So you're going to get by chance more of these. It's like cancer clusters. You know, you always see these stories about, well, there's this community in West Virginia that's kind of near this coal mine. And all of a sudden there's a bunch of prostate cancers or breast cancers or uterine cancers or whatever. And it's like, oh my God, oh my God, it's the coal, it's the, the mining company, maybe. But, you know, a cluster doesn't mean anything because you could take a handful of pennies and throw them up 
and see where they land on the ground, they're not going to be perfectly spaced. They're going to be clusters. Mm -hmm. So again, our intuition tells us a cluster means there's something going on there. There's some causal connection. In fact, randomness tells us probably not. Mm. Do you think that maybe we default to simplistic thinking as sort of a survival instinct? Like, for instance, um, to my understanding, for us to, in general, in general, accept something as true, uh, one, uh, we, especially if it's coming from someone, we listen to how certain they are, how many people buy into what they're saying, uh, how congruent they are with what it is that they're saying. And I imagine that if um, people are hearing, let's say, on the, on the news, you know, uh, um, you know, that they're some kind of conspiracy or something like that, when they start to hear that more people are buying into it, that they sort of uh, feel that it's more true. Yeah, so social proof is what social psychologists and sociologists call this. That is, most of us, most of the time, don't have the, the time or energy or, or, or resources to fact check stories we hear. So we end up trusting our social group. Well, somebody in the group hopefully has checked that. <laughs> in the case of the news media, you know, we hope ABC, NBC, NBC uh, uh, CBS, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, they all have fact checkers. Right. So what I hear and read, I, I kind of just hope, I think, you know, that it's, it's been checked and, and I don't have to check it myself. And in, in our evolutionary history, it's really our closest friends and family members. When we're kids, it's the adults, our parents, and we trust them. You have to, <laughs> you know, no one could, a kid doesn't know how the world works. They just believe whatever their parents tell them. And, yeah. uh, but that, that, that's not a bug. That's a feature. That's, that's normal. And uh, so the problem we're experiencing with the internet is that you just have this tsunami of information just sweeping over our senses. I mean, I could, I could sit here all day just on my limited twi Twitter feed chasing down stories and just hours go by. I mean, sometimes I have to just turn it off and go out for a bike ride for a couple hours just to clear my head because it's like, what is going on here? This world's gone crazy. Yeah. <laughs> and then a couple hours away from it, I'm thinking, no, actually things are okay. Because <laughs> you can, even someone like me who's you know, trained in how not to fall for those things, I fall for them all the time. So um, yeah, the social proof thing. Um, so just take something like QAnon. Uh, this has been an interesting right. phenomenon for me because this is the craziest, dumbest conspiracy theory I think I've ever heard. And I've heard mm -hmm. them all. It, yeah. it, at least it's in the top five of totally crazy conspiracy theories. You know, a, a satanic cult of pedophiles sacrificing children in a sex slave operation led by Hillary Clinton and Tom Hanks. I mean, you can't, you can't, I don't know if you saw my spoof video. You know, I mean, just kind of making fun of this. It's like it doesn't get any crazier than that. I mean, you couldn't make up something if you tried crazier than that. And yet, like 29 percent of Republicans and even 13 percent of Democrats said they think there might be something to it. Now, they can't Boy. really believe that. They can't possibly believe that like they would say some scientific empirical claim, uh, you know, climate change or the Big Bang Theory or something. But what they're doing is they're kind of echoing, well, my team the Republicans say, you know, they, they seem to think there might be something to it. So yeah. Okay. You know, and, and it's kind of a, 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 a kind of a truth that stands in for something else. The analogy I use is like in the OJ trial, you know, I, of course we all watched the whole thing and there's mm -hmm. no way you could possibly believe he didn't kill his, his wife right. and, and her friend. Yeah. Uh, it was just so obvious, uh, but the defense that the police planted the bloody glove uh, this actually had a kind of truth to it for the African-American community in Los Angeles, because the police used to do stuff like that. 
right. you know, and they were just racist assholes in the 50s, 60s and 70s. And by the 80s, things were getting better. But, you know, there were still some racist cops. And, you know, by the time this happened in the 90s, you know, a largely uh, African-American jury thought, well, OK, I'm following the arguments and the evidence. But that argument is kind of true for mm. our people in this community. So we're going to quit just to kind of stick it to them in a way. I, I think that's what was going on. Yeah. So in a way, when Republicans say, I believe this crazy conspiracy or or the spinoffs from that and related to it of the rigged election and so on, it was kind of a signal saying, yeah, I know that it, I'm thinking in their heads, you know, yeah, I know that sounds crazy, but we know that big government is bad and dangerous because that's what our party thinks. <laughs> and so, uh, 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 and sometimes elections are rigged in particularly third world countries or whatever. And, you know, it's not perfect. No elections perfect. So maybe, you know, and, and our guy saying that it was rigged our leader. And so I think they're kind of ticking the box saying, yeah, I think there's something to it in these surveys as a kind of political truth, not empirical truth, but like, this is what our team believes. So I'm going along with that. Right. And, and I mean, we also know just kind of like just looking at the situation as it is in terms of like, let's say a Hillary Clinton. I mean, she said before, she said, you know, kind of publicly that I don't uh, maybe not publicly. Let me take that back. She said, I really don't know if I can relate to the majority of the public because she's like, they're kind of so different from me or so different from us. So when people kind of say, well, you know what, Hillary is like doing these things that are so against our kind of mores. Right. It's actually not that nonsensical, even though obviously once you get into the weeds of it, you're like, OK, this is a bit nonsensical. But just the fact that she and probably I would say kind of, you know, the quote unquote establishment is so disassociated from the mainstream public. I'd say there's definitely some truth to that. Yes, that well, that, that that's right. So the how, how a candidate acts, of course, the confirmation bias, the, the other team, the other party is going to think the worst, you know, yeah. and, uh, the worst interpretation of anything they do or say. I mean, again, craziness, the the ship stuck in the Suez Canal. There was some crazy conspiracy that Hillary was behind it because the name of it, the Ever Given, was similar to Evergreen, which had some connection to the Whitewater scandal in the 80s. And then that came up in the 90s when Clinton ran for president. And, it, you know, it's one of these things like 20 steps later, you're at, you know, Hillary caused the ship to... Yeah. <laughs> So I call that patternicity, you know, tendency to find meaningful patterns and random noise. And, you know, right. again, like the face of, face of Jesus on the tortilla or Virgin Mary on the side of the building. It's something like that. Right. You know, just connecting the dots uh, to something that represents what we think. We think Hillary's a bad person. Right. She's a Democrat. We're Republicans. They're the they're the bad people. You know, and, and it's gotten worse in the last 20 years or so with the polarization of politics in which, there, you know, of course, the political parties were always divided ideologically, but, but, but they disagreed with each other on policy uh, more on an intellectual level rather than a moral level. So in other words, the conservatives are wrong about their tax rate uh, proposals or vice versa. But now mm. it's, not, it's, it's not just that they're wrong, but that they're evil. Right. You know, they're trying to destroy the country. <laughs> yeah. And that that's, that's really makes it much worse. It's it's strange to me that we have um, sites like PolitiFact, for instance, right, where we can definitely fact check what politicians say, right? But yeah, when they take up, let's say, these uh, moral arguments, it it kind of makes things murky, right? You, it, you stop paying attention to the facts, right? When it's like you have good guys versus bad guys, and then it's like, oh well, they're painting us strong. as the evil doers, right? Where they're the evil doers. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, uh, apparently, congressmen and senators just they don't spend much time together, 
anymore yeah. like they used to in the old days that, you know, they'd fight and argue and yell at each other in Congress and then they'd go to lunch together or have a drink after, after work or whatever. And right. their kids played together, but now apparently that doesn't happen anymore. And a lot of them just go home on the weekends uh, to raise money because, you know, this, it's so expensive now to, to run for office. And, and I guess there's just much few, much less interaction. And then also the rise of talk radio, which is mostly conservative, yeah. And uh, talk television, again, Fox News versus, I don't know, MSNBC, maybe CNN and that uh, on the other side. And um, and so they listen to that. I mean, um, a lot of a lot of times I'll surf around and listen to the different talk shows and then I'll hear a congressman or senator give a speech the next day. It's like Tucker Carlson was just saying that last night. I bet this guy watched that show. And sure enough, he's on the show the next day. I'm like, right. oh, OK. So these guys listen to these talk radio hosts and then they echo it. Yeah. And it's, it's very destructive because the things that these people talk about on talk radio, it's terrible. I mean, just, you know, Hillary or Obama or Biden, they want to destroy America. Right. You know, it's, it's just incredible that anybody can actually believe that. Wait. And then, so Michael, Go ahead. Right. Yeah. So if we're saying that, right, I think all three of us can agree that a lot of these claims are insanely absurd, right? I think that this is a consensus amongst all of us, right? Sure. So why is then the argument to give the devil his due, right? Why should we give any of these people platforms? Oh, well, okay, okay there's two, two issues there. First, the First Amendment issue, um, right. these are largely not First Amendment issues. You know, of course, the government's not coming in to say you can't... Fox News can't exist or the Wall Street Journal can't publish its op-eds. You know, no one's saying that. Right. Um, uh, and, and on the, but, but culturally, socially, uh, I would say, yes, I would defend their right to have that. I, I, I would not censor them in any way. I'm against cancel culture. You know, I'm, I always think we should combat these bad ideas with just better ideas and just say, well, you're wrong and here's why. Or, you know, you've got, it's, it's, it's always problematic to say you're wrong because people take that personally. You know, maybe you, 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 you're incorrect in your interpretation of those facts. Let's, let's talk about those, something like that. Right. If, you, if, you make, if you tell people they got to give up their cherished beliefs, they're not likely to do that. Right. So, yeah, so giving the devil's due, you know, yes, the, the core argument there is um, the devil is whoever disagrees with you and they should be given their due because you want them uh, to for you to be able to give your due that you want them to protect your rights to speak. And at the moment you engage in cancel culture, then you're, you're kind of shifting the norms toward the, the, those coming back to bite you when you're the one who is challenging whatever the status quo is. So, you know, that's one argument. Second argument is you might be partially wrong or completely wrong. Listening to other people, you can correct your mistaken beliefs. But even more important, because most, most of us don't think we're wrong, because if, if, if we did, we would change our beliefs, but we don't, because right. we think we're right. right anyway. So if nothing else, you can improve the quality uh, and power of your own arguments by knowing what the other side thinks. And uh, so my example I always give of this is my students at Chapman are pretty liberal. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I know they're, they're pro-choice on the abortion issue, but I know that there are some who are pro-life and they're so afraid to say anything in class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have to kind of drag it out of them because they, they're kind of looking back and forth like, ooh, is it okay if I say this? And I remind them, you know, half the country, you know, are pro-life, half. Right. You know, that's, you know, it's like a hundred million people agree with you. So it's okay to say anything. Yeah, but the people in this room... Okay, so to the pro-life, the pro-choicers, I say, give me what you think are the best arguments that the pro-lifers have. Yeah. And they don't really know what they are. Oh, they hate women. No, no, that's not an argument <laughs> that <Right>. they would <laughs> they do. 
maybe they do. I don't know, but that isn't the point. The point is, what are they actually arguing? You know, so I'll use some example like Ben Shapiro because he's he's pretty popular with the kids, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, here are the things he argues. And okay, now I still think Ben is wrong. I disagree with him on that, but my pro choice position is stronger by knowing the pro-life arguments. Mm. Okay. So that, that's the, you know, the, the case for free speech. This is all laid out in, in uh, John Stuart Mill's book on Liberty in 1859. And, uh, uh, and it, it still holds true today. And again, my, my concern, one reason I uh, wrote the book uh, was because it was my team, the liberals who were always defending free speech, you know, the free mm-hmm. speech movement in Berkeley and all through the nineties and early two thousands, it was, you know, defending free speech. And then I mean, since 2010 or so, there's been this cultural yeah. shift is kind of upside down uh, of now liberals saying, Oh, hate speech, hate speech. The words are violence and we have to combat uh, this form of violence with censorship and, 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 and so on. It's like, wait a minute. No, no, no. You know, we spent the last 50 years saying that was the wrong approach. And I'm always reminding people of, you know, it was conservatives that used to be, you know, fanatically opposed to like burning the American flag and rock songs. Right. And, you know, and, and all the, you know, kind of protests and signs that protesters would hold up and that's all speech. And, and the Supreme court um, held up all of those cases it, you can burn the American flag. You can sing about Satan all you want in your rock songs. There's nothing the government can do about it. And uh, I always tell people to go to YouTube and, and watch this video clip of Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. you know, this old six rocker, yeah. Yeah, yeah. rocker. By the 80s, he was older and and more conservative or more liberal or more active defending free speech and there's this great clip where i think it was firing line where he's he and this senator this old this old white guy you know complaining about kids these days have you heard the rock songs you know and zappa just schools him he's like they're just words senator they're just words you need to get out more (laughs) it's just great and uh so i reminded people that because here the conservative is going oh no we got to censor people and now it's you know you go on uh, listen to conservative talk radio and television and Fox news. They're all going free speech, free speech. It's like, yeah. wait a minute. We can't, we can't let these guys be the defenders of free speech against us being censorious. That's not right. Yeah. yeah. And one of the coolest kind of things that ever happened to me as a college student. So my college mentor, Dr. Timothy Stroop, he was a philosopher in John Jay college and uh, just one of my favorite human beings in the entire world. Mm-hmm. So what he used to actually do is at the end of the course, so he taught ethics and law in John Jay, he would have like these big debates between every single person in the class. So he would have one side versus the other side. And the catch to it was that you had to actually choose the opposing view. So if let's say you were for affirmative action, you had to debate for against affirmative action. If you were against affirmative action, you had to, yeah, you had to debate for it. And it was so wild because what happens towards the end is eventually people are like, you know what? I still disagree with the other view, but I could kind of see like why you believe that. It's kind of like steel manning, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I do. So, my, Michael, do you think that we have like enough of that in college, where you kind of have these type of debates where people are still no. trying? No, right? Yeah, I love that. Each- that's such a uh, that's such a great example. We should package that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's 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 really good. Yeah, that, that that is a good tool. That's a classic tool of again of steel manning. Yeah, just can you articulate what the other side is arguing? Yeah, and usually yeah. people can't do it. Um, uh, it is hard to do. I have a hard time doing it. Uh, and, uh, and I do it for a living. Uh, but, but again, um, and then the other side of that though, is I think sometimes when I do that, I'll steal men, some per- person's position and mm-hmm. I can see them when they hear what it sounds like, mm-hmm. they'll think, Hmm, 
I can do better than that. No, no, that's not what I mean. Here's what I mean. And they, and they say it rather differently. And I, I can see that it's working on them too. Like, okay, I got to improve my, my arguments. Cause if that's what he thinks I'm saying, then ah, it doesn't sound so good. Right. So, you know, conversation is just this, this kind of back and forth constantly kind of refining what exactly we mean about whatever it is we're talking about. Yeah. And I think even making the attempt to steal man, at least builds rapport between you and whoever you're um, conversing with, right? Because usually they just feel like you're this other, you don't understand my position. They'll strengthen their own position. You'll strengthen yours. But by attempting to at least show that you're trying to understand them, then sometimes they kind of let their guard down. Maybe they'll listen to you more. I suppose it depends who you're conversing with as well. Uh, but it, it is an interesting tool. Um, yeah. yeah. And by the way, that's actually what my mentor did with me. So um, I hate to admit this, but I mean, I've said this on the show before, so it is what it is. I'm actually a reformed conspiracy theorist, and I was into all of that stuff <laughs> from the reptilians to freaking, uh, who else was there? Bill Cooper, you name it, the whole freaking shebang. So when I took Tim's class, so he was really cool. And so when I took Tim's class, he's like, like who, who are you supporting, supporting this year? Who's your candidate? I was like, oh, Ron Paul. Ron Paul's fucking winning the whole thing. And he's like, wow, you really believe that? And he, I said, yeah. I was like, Ron Paul, man. I was like, you're not looking at the real polls, right? I was like, one of those people. There are these real polls, right? That, you know, the mainstream media is showing. So like what Tim did with me was that he would little by little, he would give me like literature and he would say, okay, you know what? If you, if you really understand these topics, why don't you, why don't you refute them? Why don't you come to class? You know, you read the material and if you know, you know so well about what the other side thinks and you really think they're right, why don't you refute these topics? And so what he did with me was that he put me in a position where I became sort of curious about what the other side was rather than hearing what the other side was thinking from my side, right? Rather than hearing like Ron Paul's perception of the Federal Reserve, which is obviously super skewed. And then, so Tim was like, like, why don't you read Paul Krugman? Why are you reading only Ron Paul? Why don't you kind of look at the other side, right? And so what I love about that and the question I pose to the both of you is, do you guys think that maybe it would be more helpful if we utilize more Socratic questioning to kind of help people understand why it is they believe what they do instead of, you know, obviously, you know, kind of uh, kind of being aggressive and saying, no, this is why I'm right. So using more Socratic questions to actually get them to understand why they believe what they believe. Mm. Yeah, that, that's a great example. T tell us the name. What was the name of your professor again, Tim? Oh, Dr. Tim Stroop. Tim so, Stroop. Stroop, yeah. S-T-R-O-U-P. I wonder if yeah. there's anything online of his, uh, if in, in, in any of his courses were recorded or oh, interesting to see him at work. Oh, so that's that's such a good question, man. So, um, so Tim actually just passed away uh, in the past oh, couple of months. Um, yeah. So, yeah. um, so unfortunately, so no, there was nothing recorded. But Tim was a teacher in John Jay for oh my god, over 30, 40 years. He has he has a whole long lineage. And by the way, he was actually mentored by John Mackey, which is like the coolest fucking thing ever. If you're like into philosophy, so because he went to Oxford, and so but no, unfortunately, none of his uh, none of his courses were recorded. But the thing is, yeah, like, because. We should yeah. package that. I mean, yeah. other people do it, uh, and, and that is the proper way. That is the proper job of a professor. I'm a, I'm a professor, and more and more we're seeing, particularly in the social sciences and humanities, professors acting as activists rather than as Socratic teachers, which is exactly what they should be. I mean, I have tons of opinions, but um, I, I try to make sure my students really actually don't know what they are. Or if I say say that they are, I'll go, this is just my opinion. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't care what you think on this. It doesn't matter what I think. You know, we're here to learn. 
And, uh, you know, they all have to write a paper and they all have to give a student TED talk and they have to defend a position. And I tell them 20 times, I don't care what the position is. That's not what I'm interested in. I want to see you defend it, you know, and do you know what the counter arguments are and what are your counter arguments to the counter arguments and so on? That's the only thing that matters. And the reason I say that so many times is because so many professors now are just activists. They're, you know, they're there to teach the students what the correct answers are to these complex social issues. And that's just no good because it's just not like that in social issues. They're usually so complex that we don't know what the correct answer is or they're conflicting rights, say the rights, the rights of the fetus versus the rights of the, of the mother in the right. abortion debate. There's no perfect resolution to that. There's no like scientific experiment we're going to run or data we're going to collect. And, oh, there, that's the correct answer. And the, the, everybody else is wrong. It's not like that for a lot of these political moral issues or, you know, co- constant conflicts. Mm. And, you know, what's the right tax rate? I don't know. <laughs> you know, this country has this rate and this state has that rate and Texas has no income tax here in California. 10%. I paid 10% uh, more income tax above my federal. I know this because I just did my taxes this week and it was painful. And so, you know, I'm paying 33% to the Fed and 10% to the state. You know, maybe I should do what Joe Rogan did and move to Texas, you know, yeah. then I have no income tax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, okay. You know, so, uh, but there's no, it's not like, Texas is right and California is wrong. It's just you know, different states run different experiments and you can pick and choose or or run for office or vote this other guy in that's going to pass your legislation that you want. Yeah. So there you you absolutely have to have multiple voices in case of a, in a classroom because how, how are they going to know that there's actually, you know, four different positions on that particular issue and you're just giving them one of them. Mm. Out of curiosity, how would you... Um... I don't know if reconcile is the right word, but uh, sort of, okay, so I definitely agree with you. And I think a a lot of people will agree with you that to combat bad ideas with better ideas is the right way to go, right? Um, What would you say to- Or or you can just ignore them. I mean, you don't have to address everybody. You could just, you know, it's like, uh, you don't have to invite um, Milo Yiannopoulos to your campus to speak. You could just ignore him. That's also an option. So out of curiosity, say somebody is objectively correct. Their, their argument is on point. Um, they uh, steel man the other person's argument uh, perfectly, and their argument is just better, uh, objectively speaking. But when a factor like, let's say, uh, charisma or popularity sort of uh, comes into play, h- how do we sort of um, deal with that? Because that, that, make, that could just make dangerous ideas that aren't objectively true more popular and random. That's a good question. Really good question. <laughs> well, make your your side sexier. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's yeah. what it is, right? Yeah. I mean, I you just it's just the way it Trump is. Up. I mean, it's like <laughs> <laughs> you got to trump yourself up. We know, that's right. Trump yourself up. I mean, you know, Trump was a great campaigner. He's really he funny. He's really entertaining yeah. compared to pretty much any of the other candidates of the 15 back in 2015 when he first started running. Uh, I remember listening to um, uh, Megan Kelly's show when she first started her podcast and she was recounting um, working in the newsroom at Fox News 
when Trump announced. And I, I guess Roger Ailes came in and said, all right, I want a camera crew on Trump 24 mm seven. -hmm. And they're like, well, but don't we have an obligation to cover the other 14 candidates in the primaries? He's got fuck those guys. They're boring. <laughs> yeah. I want a camera crew on Trump. This is our ratings goldmine. We're going to, we're going to make a, a, a boatload of money on this guy. And they did. Mm -hmm. Right. And he was, you know, Scott Walker and Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz's, He's trying to up his game now because he saw what Trump did with that, but he's too stiff. He's not not funny like Trump. So yeah, I don't want to say channel your inner Trump, but because this is too much baggage that goes with that. But you know what I mean? That uh, you yeah, know, yeah. we know from tons of studies that better looking people, really good looking people, they get so many breaks in life, women and men. You know, taller, good looking men are more likely to win um, elections and so forth. Well. Just gotta just got up your game, you know. Improve your 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 the quality of your voice if you're a public speaker. There are I took a training course on this once when I first started public speaking. I had no yeah. idea. People go, oh, you got to speak from down here in your lungs, not up here where you're kind of nasal. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I had no idea. You know, and then and it's just dress. You know, put on a nice ja jacket and you know, and uh, I don't know. Stand stand tall with your shoulders back. You know, there's just all kinds of oh, things yeah. you could do. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, those things make a difference. Now, you know, in a, in a in a perfect world, maybe we would say they wouldn't make a difference, but that's not the world we live in. And uh, so, oh, where yeah. did you learn to public speak? Oh, mostly just by doing it. But I uh, I think this was like in the late '80s. Um, somebody had said you should you should call this person here. They tr they they're a, a voice coach and they teach people how to speak. Okay, yeah. so I, I I took took some lessons and and then I also started actually just watching professional speakers. Uh, initially, just like self help people like Tony Robbins and people like that. It's like wow, they're really good. Yeah. And uh, and so watching other people now, some of it's personality and temperament. Like I can't do what Neil deGrasse Tyson does. You know, he's just he's so animated. Or say someone like Bill Nye. He's funny. Bill is really funny. Mm -hmm. And I know Bill personally, and I've spent a lot of time with him alone at, or at, at small dinners. And he's, he's funny off the air, you know, off camera. He's, he's witty. He's fast. He's quick. He's, you know, he's entertaining. Mm -hmm. And some of that just comes naturally, but, it, it, but a lot of it comes with practice. You just do yep. it and do it and do it and do it. And, uh, you know, so that's why I have my students do a student TED talk. They got to get up there in front of class, 18 minutes, just like a TED. Mm -hmm. And uh, I give them the whole outline that TED gave me. You know, here's the things you got to do and here's what your PowerPoint should look like. And because there, there's a skill to it. Yeah. yeah. But ultimately, you just have to do it enough and that you get better at it like anything else. And, um, and, and so that, that also makes a difference for delivering your ideas, your, your allegedly correct ideas over the bad ideas. Yeah, the delivery also makes a difference, which is which is true in writing too. I mean, take someone like um, Steve Pinker. Did you have his book there? Richard Dawkins, yep. Steve Gould, Carl Sagan. You know, these are great writers, and uh, and that makes a difference. And mm -hmm. it should make a difference. That's a skill, you know. And it's like, you know, people I know, some scientists, academics, kind of jealous of Richard. You know, when it, particularly with the God delusion, when it just went bonkers and sold you know millions right. of copies. And, and they were kind of griping. How come my book doesn't, you know, well, because you're, you're not as good a writer as he is to be blunt. Right. <laughs> yeah. Tell a few people he's a great writer. That's a skill, you know, yeah. so go learn, go learn the skill, you know, delivering the content is just as important as the content. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I love that you say that because for me, my favorite speaker of all time is Bobby Kennedy. And for anybody who's ever seen Bobby Kennedy's early speeches, they were horrible. So back when he was still living like in JFK shadow, they were awful. He stuttered, he muttered, he couldn't get his words out. And people were like, damn, man, maybe like politics just isn't for you. And then like little by little, especially after Jack passed away, I mean, like Bobby became a really flick phenomenal and kind of fervent speaker. And people were, and the thing is with him, it wasn't even that he had this like sort of uh, arousing voice. It was just that he was able to clearly convey his ideas in an emotional way where people kind of got the sense that he cared. Whereas like, I think with Trump, what you're seeing is that he's just like, he, he just, he believes in himself, right? So you see a confidence there, which is cool. But like when you kind of, let's say, contrast that with the Barack Obama, you actually got the sense of that person, that human being actually cared about you when he was talking. So yeah, when Barack speaks, you get the sense he's thinking about it. Like he pauses, like I'm thinking about my next sentence or whatever. So that gives you a sense like he's not just reading the, the teleprompter, right. you know, he's, he's actually thinking Jordan does that too. Jordan Peterson, yeah. you know, you know, this is, you know, what's the explanation for the Jordan Peterson phenomenon? Well, he's really good at what he does. You know, he's a good speaker and, and I've been on stage with him several times and I've seen him perform, perform, if you want to call it that it is kind of a performance, not a lecture. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he doesn't right. He doesn't give a lecture. He just comes out the first, I think the first time I saw him was, he was on some panel discussion. There was like three speakers at a conference. And the first two were just academics, like, you know, and they just get, they just delivered, you know, they, they hold up the, you know, their notes, like, you know, this kind of thing. And, uh, and then, and then Jordan comes out, he was the third speaker. I forget the topic, but you know, they were kind of just quoting philosophers and ideas and, and he just walks out, he goes, you know, after I got invited to this, I've just been thinking and thinking about this. And, you know, yesterday I was reading Nietzsche and, you know, Nietzsche has this idea. And then, you know, next thing he's talking about Jung and this, the theme of the conference. And, and it's like, boy, it just changed the whole atmosphere of the room. It's like, oh my God, this guy is like in totally engaged and everybody's like, what's he going to say next? Right. <laughs> Instead of delivering a boring speech, you're, you're kind of doing a performance with the audience and they're, you know, giving you energy back. And, you know, that that's an art. There's an art to that. Absolutely. Why do you think he still gets flack? I, I think it's been already, the nuance has been revealed that he just, uh, that the whole thing with the, uh, I believe he didn't want to, uh, pardon me, uh, if you could correct me, the transgender thing, right? right he, he didn't want to call people by their pronouns. Yeah, he didn't want to call people by the pronouns, but not because he didn't respect them, because he didn't want it to be legislated. Mm -hmm. He didn't want it to be considered a hate crime if he, uh, he or someone else spoke out of turn, right? Yeah. However, I believe it's been elucidated on several different interviews that uh, he said that if he ever, if someone asked him to uh, call them by their uh, pronoun, he would definitely respectfully call them by that. And that's been cleared up already a million times. And I'll still talk to some of my other friends um, and I'll tell them I, I love Peterson. I love some of the, uh, his lectures, um, his, uh, th those conversations at uh, seminars where he spoke with either uh, Sam Harris or um, losing my thread here. It's fine. But yeah, I think like, he even did one with Slavo Zizek. Yeah, there you yeah, go. There Joe you go. Rogan, he was on Joe. I just had yeah. him on. We did three hours last week that we'll post this on my podcast. Oh, nice. Spectacular. Wow. spectacular we got it we got into all that well okay so my take on it is um first of all he's 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 pushing some hot button issues that you know are, are current right now which is good that's what you're supposed to do as a public intellectual mm -hmm. and um 
And yes, he did make that clear uh, about, uh, uh, you know, calling people by whatever they want to be called, of course, because he's not an asshole. And, you know, that's what you do. You just, you're polite. The example I use is I had a a roommate at Pepperdine whose name was Dwayne and he hated his name. I had actually gone to high school with him. And so he he just came to us one day and said, I've changed my name. I'm like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. D'Artagnan. We're like, (laughs) what? (laughs) D'Artagnan. (laughs) <laughs> you know the the three musketeers the four yeah. musketeers d'artagnan we're like how do you spell that you're like well let's see d apostrophe a r t g a n you know it's like so then he said okay just call me dar I'm like, yeah okay so we did and that I, st- I still in touch with him they call him dar okay and uh of course you do that because you know we're not assholes he's our friend okay all right that's his name right. of course what jordan is worried about and so we actually got in this in our conversation because we got talking about fascism and the nazis and and uh, to what extent, this is a project I've been working on for a long time, is to what extent uh, were the German people Nazified? That is to say, in the larger question, how do you get one of the most cultured, educated um, nation of people in, in, in modern history to become goose-stepping Nazis? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. And one answer is that they never actually did do that in terms of the, the, you know, the, the majority. You know, Hitler came to power on a minority. Um, party and there were other parties so no one had a majority and then once he got some power he 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 got more power and then made himself dictator eliminated the press and then started locking people up who were dissenting in any way so you have two effects going on there pluralistic ignorance where everybody thinks everybody else thinks something is true when in fact almost nobody believes it like college drinking is the classic study done on this, you know, binge drinking. You know, if you ask individual college students, do you like to binge drink? They almost all go, no, I don't like it. No, I get sick. It's terrible. But I know everybody else is into it. So, you know, I got to do it. <laughs> so if you, so one, one counter to this the colleges are using now is to cite the study going, hey, look, everybody, no one actually likes this. So stop doing that. Right. <laughs> okay. So in a, in a way that kind of happened because there was no opportunity for dissent to be voiced again, back mm. to free speech. You know, if I think everything, everybody else believes this thing, then I think, well, I guess, you know, back to the social proof, I guess I'll just go along or maybe they're right. What yeah. do I know? You know, everybody else is doing this. But if, but if somebody then stands up and says, you know, I, I'm not too sure about it, then somebody else goes, hey, me too. I was thinking the same thing. I don't think it's good. And then all of a sudden you got a room full of people going, you know what? This is all bullshit. Let's stop believing it. And then, of course, I'm going to go, I knew it. Okay. I can trust my own thoughts. But, right. you know, in the case of Hitler, if you lock everybody up that dissents, well, you know, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Right. right and right. Uh, so that's what happened. That, that kind of held the whole thing aloft for 12 years. Well, so Peterson told me that one reason for that standing up to Bill C-16 in Canada was had people back in 1932 or when Hitler was running in, say, 3031 when he was coming into power, mm-hmm. they stood up and said something then and when, they were, when there was time to do it before they suppressed the, the press and started locking people up, maybe could have, they could have stopped him then. Right. So this is why he he drew the line. Again, it's not what you and I call somebody we know. That's not it at all. It's to what extent the state is going to come in and go, you are going to do this or else, mm. you know, fine or jail, imprisonment, and so on. And um, you know that that is of course what's behind the law, mm. as uh, Max Weber famously defined the government as a institution with a, a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. They're the one organization that can say, we have guns and we have jails. And if you don't do it, 
you don't follow the law, we're going to penalize you. And then we're going to do this and this and this. Eventually, we're going to send somebody to your house with guns and we're taking you to jail. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, there's a lot of steps between, you know, that the, the one and the other, to be sure. But, you know, just try, try not paying your taxes. Okay, well, you could probably get away with it for a few years and you'll get letters and, and then you'll get, uh, you know, bills for fines. And then they'll put a lien on your house. And, you know, there's many steps in between, but at some point there's going to be a warrant out for your arrest for not, you know, whatever it is, your your, your law you broke. And then you don't show, not a warrant for your arrest, a court case, let's say, and you don't show up. Well, then, you know, boom, you're guilty. All right. So here's your, now you got to show up in court for your penalty trial. I'm not going to go. Well, at some point they're coming to your house (laughs) with guns. Okay. This has to be, uh, in a, in a state, the state has to have that kind of power or else people are just going to go, I'm not going to follow the laws. Right. So at least that's our kind of the social contract, how it works. So Jordan's point is that you got to stop it early when you can, Mm -hmm. right. That, that was his point. Now back to your first part, first part of the question. Uh, I think some of it is jealousy, honestly, because I've known a lot of famous intellectuals in my life now, Carl Sagan, Stephen Jay Gould, to name a few in the say eighties. And they were vilified. Oh my God. People just, now we didn't have social media, so it wasn't quite as prominent. Wait, people hated Carl Sagan. Oh, his, his call, his colleagues, fellow astronomers. He's like the nicest guy. Yeah. 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 Uh No, no. Very, a lot of jealousy there. Just, you know, how come this guy's on the Tonight Show. Why am I not on the Tonight Show? Right. There's a lot of that. I mean, I, I understand. I get that. Uh, you know, you bunch of people put all this work in, and they, they they run these experiments. They collect all this data from the Hubble Space Telescope or whatever, and they publish these technical papers. They spend decades on some theory, and then Carl Sagan goes on the Tonight Show to talk about it, mm-hmm. and it's like. How come I'm not on the Tonight Show to talk about that? How come I don't have a book that sells a million copies? How come I don't have my own PBS television series? Yeah. Right. Well, that's just the way it goes because most people can't do that. Right. And that's a that's a gift. And you know, Jordan has a gift of communication in in, a, in his own powerful way. He's not entertaining and funny like like say Neil deGrasse Tyson is. Uh, you know, he's pretty serious. It's hard to get him to crack a smile. He, he he'll do it, but, right. uh, but it's a different kind of, and people, you know, kind of snap to attention like, Oh my God, this guy's saying something serious. I'm going to listen. And, um, you know, so there's that. And also he's not towing the tip, just kind of right down the, the, the progressive left line. I don't think he's really conservative in any kind of the traditional way people think of conservatives, but let's just say he's kind of centrist, but, to the modern left, our left, centrist is, you know, you're a Nazi. <laughs> you know, it's basically anybody, you know, one millimeter to the right of center is, you know, is Hitler in the new way of configuring these things. And so, of course, you know, anybody like that and Jordan says anything, you know, like on, on the trans issue, not just the pronouns, but um, like I just had Abigail Schreier on my podcast with her book, um, Irreversible Damage, uh, about trans kids. Um, mostly girls uh, transitioning to boys in their early teen years, taking uh, puberty blockers and testosterone, and even worse, the top surgery, as it's called. I never heard this till I read this book. You know, they get their boobs lopped off, double mastectomy. I mean, women that have to get double mastectomies because of breast cancer, it's a massively traumatic experience psychologically, not to mention physically. And here are these, you know, teenage girls are voluntarily doing it. 
Why? This is the question. So it's a, you know, her hypothesis, Abigail's, is that they're not really trans. They don't, they don't want to be boys. They want to be part of the cool culture thing trend that's going on right now, which is trans. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now, now she's gotten a shitload of hate. <laughs> and then I got some of it for just talking to her. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and I don't have a dog in that fight. I don't, I don't, you know, it's not my thing, but uh, yeah, because I, I get I, other people. I would just wonder what the, what the data is, because from what I've seen is essentially the majority of trans kids, even after transitioning, don't want to transition back. So, I mean, just to kind of argue that it's sort of like the cool thing to do. I know it's a bit reductionist. Well, OK, so back to your first question there, what's the real number? So I asked her this, you know, because yeah. she said the real number is like 0.01 percent. So one tenth of one percent. Trans. Now, maybe it's higher than maybe it's one percent. I don't know. I guess that's mm -hmm. probably debatable. But in some of these communities, she says, you know, it's like 10 percent, 20 percent. Well, it can't be that high. It, but maybe it is. Maybe we've been oppressing people for so long that they've been afraid to come out. And maybe this is the new real norm. Mm -hmm. okay. So her counter to that. So I'm still manning the arguments because I read the cr critiques of her book. Mm -hmm. And uh, so she said, well, but it's not happening in other cohorts. First of all, it used to be that, that whatever the low number is, uh, 0.01%, maybe 1%. Uh, it was the same between boys transitioning to girls and girls transitioning to boys. Now it's all just the one, just girls transitioning to boys. And only in that, that cohort, like 13 to 17, not 18 to 24, not 25 to 30, not 30 to 30. None of the other cohorts have, any, have had any shift in transitioning in the sense that if it was now culturally acceptable, Shouldn't it be happening across age cohorts? I'm just giving you her response to this. Yeah. Kind mm -hmm. of that counterfactual causality. Mm -hmm. That would be one way to, to test that hypothesis. And uh, anyway, so um, yeah, again, I don't, you know, I don't have a dog in that fight, but my sense is that um, it's some combination uh, of, you know, cultural acceptance. So more people are doing it. But I'm troubled by the idea that a 13-year-old has any idea what gender means for them at that age, and then to make a decision that could change, affect your life for the next, the rest of your life, the next 30, 40 years, 50 years. You know, we don't let them drive. They can't vote. They can't join the military and go to war. They can't drink or smoke or take drugs. You know, we, and there's a reason for that. And the, you know, the 2005 Supreme Court decision. Uh, the justices said you can't execute a minor because whatever they did, however bad it was, they don't have the kind of self-control. The prefrontal cortex is not fully developed and so forth to uh, be held in completely morally accountable for their actions. Therefore, they should be treated differently than adults. Right. Well, if that's true for all these other things, shouldn't that be true for a 13-year-old and gender? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's fair. Know, when I first heard about these issues i started reading you know the literature about gender and sex and how they're different and all it's like wow this is more way more complicated than i thought it is yeah and i had to read a lot to kind of wrap my mind around it. and i thought how would a 13 year old have any idea what the hell all this means you know yeah. their body's going through all these changes and they're like oh i feel differently yeah okay we all kind of went through the anyway all right, right. well yeah and i mean just but, 
Well, yeah, going back to the trans argument, the idea there is that obviously if they hit puberty at that point, right, it's sort of traumatizing for them. So whatever degree is obviously different for different kids and different people. Um, I, I don't know. So in that respect, I haven't really been able to square the two. So those two ideas, obviously, on the one hand, where you have kids having surgery or not having surgery. And then on the other hand, you obviously don't want people who are legitimately trans kids, you know, kind of going through the puberty of a male if they're essentially a female and then vice versa. So I don't know. I wish I had the answer to that. But you're right. It is a complex topic. And when you kind of go into the details, of it it's far from black and white very far yeah. far yeah yeah anyway but so back to the larger point that we, yeah. we need to have conversations about that and research right. and publish research i mean there's examples where scientists have had their articles retracted by scientific peer-reviewed journals when um, social media puts pressure on them because they say it's transphobic to publish that data it can't data cannot be transphobic it is whatever it is right, right. if you think the data is wrong then publish another article showing why that's wrong. You know, you collected for the, the, the sample size was biased or what sample you chose was biased, whatever. After I had her on, I had people writing me, why don't you talk to this person? Or why don't you cite these studies? It's like, send me the studies. Crickets. Who should I have on? Crickets. It's like, all right, well, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah. Even if the data hurts, so to speak, right. We should be paying attention to it. Yeah. I'm sorry. Facts are facts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so speaking of that, so speaking of kind of scientific information, right? So if we're not appealing to the legal system, right? You know, call up, uh, call, uh, you know, the Jordan Peterson argument there, or conversation we just had. So if we're not appealing to the legal system to kind of enforce, you know, sort of rules on what we can and can't say, and then obviously we're saying, you know, we're giving the devil his due, right? So what happens then when misinformation and in particular scientific misinformation is propagated? How do we combat that? Is it like with some uh -huh. disclaimer or asterisk, kind of like what Twitter and Facebook are doing? Yeah. Yeah. Let me address that in a second, but, but first make, make another point. Uh, it's, we need to separate moral issues about rights and how people are treated from scientific questions about the stuff we were just talking about. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's 0.001% that's trans, or if it's just one person in the country who's trans, mm -hmm. they have the same rights as citizens and should be protected under the constitution and so on. Right. Now, where this comes into conflict uh, culturally is, say, the women's sports issue now that's on the, on the front right. burner. Uh, so you have a, a trans male to female and they want to enter women's sports say, in high school, track and field. You know, you've seen these videos where these guys just that are now trans women, they just kick the ass of these other women. I mean, it's just not even close. Yeah. And, you know, so, yes, we want to protect the rights of trans. But what about the rights of the women? to compete against other women. There's a reason there's women's divisions and the title nine thing, you know, this is fought for for decades that women's sports should be equal and on and on. And so here again, uh, much of the conflicts we deal with are conflicting rights, like the rights of the fetus, the rights of the mother. Here are the rights of the trans versus the rights of girls in sports say. Um, there's no perfect answer to that. Uh, uh, to me, I side on the side of, of uh, women that have fought hard for these rights and not to, not to give them up. And again, it makes me nervous when it's always, you know, the guys want to enter the women's division. It's never women want to enter the guy's division. Why is that? Well, it's pretty obvious why. And, uh, and also historically, men have always tried to control women and lord it over them and, 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 and capture their reproductive rights and so on. There's a long history of this. And right. so whenever men want to get in on women's uh, you know, bathrooms, prisons, 
sports, it's like I automatically go, wait a minute, guys, that's what been been doing for centuries or not millennia. So we got to push back against that. Anyway, uh, so what? Uh, the, uh, oh, they're combating what was the question again? Yeah, so so if we're, if we're not using the legal system right to combat scientific misinformation, oh, then yeah. how are we doing it? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. We're, we're doing well. We're doing it like what we're doing now, podcasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, Write, write op-ed pieces for your local newspaper, for the mm-hmm. New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or, you know, go on TV or, you know, write books, give speeches, you know, and just go, go down to the local park with your bullhorn and go, hey, whatever it is, I mean that. But what what happens though? Because like I mean, you you obviously we all agree that it's kind of the society and in, in general is just so polarized, right? Like I can name you God knows at this point because our family is Russian, our families are Russian, so we have a ton of anti-vaxxers in our family. We have um, a ton of election fraud folks in our families, right? I mean, this is kind of like a thing, especially in Brooklyn, right? So. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's especially like in Brooklyn, we have like these clusters of like Italian and Russian communities who are super conservative, right? So what do we do there then? <laughs> especially if like, you know, it's misinformation being spread and they're only, because it's so polarized, they're only looking at each other's like Facebook feeds. Yeah, yeah. That's I think it goes one. back to your point earlier of uh, combating bad ideas with better ideas, right? It's just that it, it, if yes, it's about the presentation. Yeah, sorry. You have to do it. Yeah, it's about the presentation. That's right. You have to do it in a way that doesn't make them feel they have to give up their uh, you know deepest conviction. So if you if someone is defining themselves as conservative, you know we know what that means. They have kind of a suite of things that they believe: a small government, lower taxes, and individual freedom and individual rights. Blah blah blah. And uh, so if you go well, uh, you have to give all that up in, for for. for to accept this idea I'm giving you, they're not going to give that up. The example I give, you give people a choice between Darwin and Jesus, creationists. They're not right. picking Darwin. Okay. Right. He's, he's not going to save your soul. Okay. Dar- right. So you have to say, look, you can keep Jesus and your soul and heaven, the whole package. Maybe evolution is the way God created life. You know, you, you have to present it in a way that they don't have to give anything up. Just accept right. the truth because it's true. Right. Except the science, because it's true and uh, without having to give anything up. So to your conservative friends, yeah, you just have to say, look, I understand where you're coming from. You know, conservatives are great. It's all good. Uh, (laughs) But on this one thing here, you know, this is what we think is going on. Something like that. Also, it helps if you can find an ally on their side who accepts your position. So, Mm -hmm. for example, to, to, to Christians, I don't send them to Richard Dawkins to read about evolution. I send them to Francis Collins because Francis Collins, A, is his uh, science bona fides are great. He's the head of the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, that is. And he has a couple of best-selling books defending evolution, explaining how evolution works all the way down to the genetic level. And I, you know, no one writes as good as Richard Dawkins, but he, you know, he, mm-hmm. he's a good writer. Uh, Francis Collins, a good writer. And he explains how we know evolution happened. And he's on their team. He's a born-again right, right. evangelical Christian who accepted Jesus as his Savior. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that you may have eternal life, blah, blah, blah. He buys the whole thing, and he accepts evolution. So I give him that right. book and go, here, this is your guy. He's on your team, and he says evolution's okay to believe in. They go, oh, hmm, okay. <laughs> so, again, that, that's an example. How, how often does that work? I don't know, because I don't have a database. It's just something I do. I, I can just tell from feedback, like uh, they don't, they, they drop the wall and they go, okay, they're, they're listening to me now. And that's, the, I think that's the key to uh, that kind of open communication. 
Yeah, yeah it makes sense. Uh, we had Kirk Schneider on. Uh, he, he wrote a book called uh, Depolarizing America, and he sort of outlines this method uh, for how to sort of uh, have these really um, quote unquote uncomfortable conversations. And actually, yeah, a lot of what we're discussing here is actually part of that method. One, one steel manning what they're saying, seeing where they're coming from, they start to let their guard down, as you say, and then you start to be able to go have a back and forth and then understand each other and integrate both sides. Yeah. Or if there's more than both, you know, yeah, absolutely. And Michael, was that kind yeah, of like you your, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, if you can find some common ground where where you might say, look, I, I agree with you on this and this, just this one little thing here, that makes them feel like, um, you know, we're, we have some something to share and, and be respectful, uh, you know, and, and also if, there, if you can find a way to say, I can see why you, you believe that or better, I used to believe that or I, I, I believe some of this, mm. you know, because as a I'm kind of a I'm socially liberal, but I'm kind of classically liberal economically. So libertarian, classical liberal, whatever you want to call me. Mm -hmm. So here I can say, you know, I, oh, I'm totally to my conservative friends. I totally get why you're concerned about liberals and the far left and progressives and the woke culture. I, I'm on board with you there. And they're like, OK, OK, good. So we have a little <laughs> common ground. And I'll say, you know, and I used to own guns and I, I was against gun control, but, you know, I kind of changed my mind and here's why say we're talking about guns and they're like, oh, so I've kind of pulled him along like, okay, he's on, he's with me. He's with me. He's with me. Oh, there's just one little thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think I'll listen to him because he's with me on these other things or he's being respectful or he's, he's paying attention and, and uh, he can see why I, I, I love my guns or something like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I, it was, I learned that was, when I did it. I did a series of gun debates with uh, John Lott, who is the guy that wrote that book, uh, "More Guns, Less Crime." You know, he's sort of a, a regular on Fox News for a while after that book came out. Yeah, and uh, you know, so I, we did a series of public debates. One of them was in uh, Texas. And I swear, most of the audience, I think, was was packing heat. <laughs> thought, I'm sure. Oh, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> so how did the debate? Be respectful. I, yeah, and how did the debate go? I, I think they mostly supported him going mm -hmm. in, yeah. which is why I said, look, I grew up with guns. This is true. My stepfather was a, was a hunter of shotguns, uh, dove, quail, ducks, stuff like that. And I used to do that. And then I had a handgun uh, for about 20 years, actually, in my home. Mm -hmm. Then I eventually got rid of it. Uh, I was going, my, my marriage kind of turned, turned sour and we were having some nasty fights. I thought, I'm just going to get rid of this thing. I don't want anybody doing anything crazy because this is what happens, right? People lose their, right. their minds and, and fights and they lose their temper. And if you have a weapon around, that's, you know, probably half of all gun violence is accidents like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Call them accidents, but you know, just spur of the moment, heat of the moment kind of thing. And then I've never had a gun since. I'm, I'm not saying I would never get one. And uh, it's fine. If that's what you think you want to do, get a gun. But just right. know that there's risks with that. You know, not, right. not just to mention the, the, the problems I just talked about, but, you know, somebody breaks into your home and they, hit, they got your gun. Right. Well, you may get shot with your own gun or your, your, your kid's friends come over. And they, they find the gun, you know, and did you properly unload it? Is, are, is the ammunition somewhere else? Did you remember to go through the steps of, you know, the, all the safety measures you take? And, you know, there's, there's a risk. It's not risk-free. Thomas Sowell always says there's no solutions. They're just trade-offs. Yeah. <laughs> so there's, it's always going to be true. risks. Yeah.
And so I, we want to obviously be mindful of your time. And before we wrap up, Mike, I also wanted to tell you, so something that was really important to me in my psychotherapy and my practice. So your article on cosmic insignificance was super significant for my work. So I kind of work as an existential wow. therapist. Yeah, yeah. So just being able to separate what's, you know, cosmic meaning and cosmic significance on that grand scale from the scale that we live on, you know, kind of Alvi and going back to that Woody Allen film, Andy <laughs> yes. Hall. Yeah, that's yeah, been yes. super important to me, especially with depressed patients, because in their minds, it's always like, well, I don't matter because because who cares, right? The universe is going to go on without me. And I frequently kind of point to some of the ideas in your article. And I tell them, yeah, but we don't live on that scale. Your mother doesn't care whether or not you're going to affect the trajectory <laughs> of the universe. I don't care whether you're not, you're going to affect the trajectory <laughs> of the universe, right? So, but the point is that we care about you individually. So thank you for writing that. Oh, you're welcome. Thank, thanks for saying that. I, I didn't know that's what you do. So uh, you have a clinical practice yeah. and a lot of your clients have uh, suffer from depression or sadness or anxiety or whatever. Okay. Yeah. So depression, and, anxiety, a few personality disorders here and there. Yeah. Uh-huh. And uh, I haven't followed this literature in a long time, but is uh, cognitive behavioral therapy still pretty popular for dealing with a lot of these things? Absolutely. Uh -huh. So, yeah. So I'm pretty much a cognitive behavioral therapist slash existential therapist. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then how do you deal with somebody's? Yeah. Okay. So I guess you just tell them, read Shermer's article. No. <laughs> uh, I mean, if somebody, yeah. Something I mean, like that. Yeah. But how do you know? I'm just curious. How do you know if somebody that's clinically depressed or they're super sad or they, and, and they're describing it in a way you would say, well, they're existentially depressed or sad. But how do you know it's not just brain chemistry? They're just having oh, so a. That's a great question. So it's actually both. So what's so interesting is that in kind of the mainstream public sort of understanding, there's sort of a way of separating mental illness from like, you know, regular problems where we can say, well, this person doesn't have bipolar disorder, right? It just seems to be the situation where actually that's not true. So it's always some level of brain chemistry involved. So can we say that somebody might be like really excited? Yeah, of course we get excited all the time. But when we're talking about bipolar disorder, we can't say somebody's having a manic episode, but no, no, it's not brain chemistry. It's just a situation. So to answer, your question, it's actually both. So it's um, so what's so interesting about therapy is that sometimes therapy doesn't work. And what you actually find is that the medication is more effective where like, let's mm. say in the long run, what happens is if they're on like, let's say a reasonable, uh, let's say a reasonable dose of it. And it's a medication that works for them. That makes them susceptible to therapy, which is the hope. So the hope is not necessarily for the medication to cure them. It's for them to be able to take in and actually really consider the ideas of therapy. Whereas for some other people, let's say if they take medication, it's honestly becomes I don't, I don't want to say a shit show, but it gets really bad because of the side effects. So what happens for those kind mm -hmm. of people is therapy is actually more effective where they're like, you know what? I actually don't like medication and I seriously want to consider some of the ideas in therapy, mm -hmm. but there's no actual way to separate it. It's sort of like saying, can we separate the mind or the body? We can't. It's all sort right, of interconnected right, and infused. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How interesting. How interesting. Yeah. So, and do they still recommend SSRIs? for uh, mild depression to serious so, depression? So good question. So not for mild depression. So for mild depression, the idea is essentially you go into cognitive behavioral therapy off the bat. Um, so for moderate depression, SSRIs are recommended because for, let's say somebody who's struggling with moderate depression, the chances of them like actually benefiting from therapy are very low just because they're kind of, um, they're sort of, they're susceptible to negative moods and negative biases. And then when you're kind of trying to talk mm. things through, they kind of find a way to wiggle around your explanations. And they're like, mm, well, you're just my therapist. Of course, you're going to say these things. Here are all the reasons why I suck, right? And for severe depression, it's definitely like the probably the only thing that actually works because for severe depression, therapy is actually often counterindicated because unfortunately, it's often mm. not effective at all. But for mild depression, therapy is like the first kind of recourse. They actually, you're if a psychiatrist med recommends medication for you and you have mild depression, there's actually a problem with the psychiatrist. 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's usually like money hungry because usually if you come in and you're like, hey, you know, I've been kind of feeling sad for the past two weeks. Uh, you know, I'm functioning okay. I'm getting through, you know, my day to day okay. Work is still somewhat enjoyable. I'm still interacting with my family. Yeah, a psychiatrist doesn't say, you know what, we're going to put you on an SSRI. No, no, it's like here, go see a therapist. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I presume you distinguish between um, sort of crisis moments of depression or anxiety because something happened, divorce or death in the family, lost your job versus chronic over, you know, I've always felt this way or I've been sad for 10 years or something like that. Yeah, so there's a, a highly sensitive personality trait, which is pretty much research indicates that it's genetic at this point. So if that's the case, then those people kind of, uh, it's sort of like... It's like a tumultuous sea. So they have like really high highs occasionally, but it's mostly low lows where it's sort of like anything in life sort of beats them down. It's the antithesis of like stoicism in the way that we kind of think about it. Um, whereas like, yeah, you would have a person who's just, let's say, you know, periodically depressed or maybe has like uh, recurrent episodes. So those people usually get it during like real crises or like, you know, crises for most of us, like divorce. Uh, let's say, you know, death in the family, et cetera. Uh, whereas honestly, most people don't even actually experience depressive episodes during like those periods. They get really sad, but they wouldn't necessarily meet the criteria for major depressive disorder. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I had a girlfriend once who uh, she had long, long-term severe depression and she had to take the SSRIs. And yeah. she said, if I didn't do it, I could, I just couldn't even get out of bed. I just didn't yeah. want to go to work. I mean, you know, how do you know you got a problem? Well, if if your spouse leaves you, you lose your job or whatever, you got a problem, right? It's yeah. kind of a kind of the, the sort of operational definition of, of an addiction or a problem would be if your life is totally fucked up, you got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the good thing Not about to make light of it, but, yeah. <laughs> but it was like the, with pornography, we did an issue on a skeptic on pornography. Is it, is it dangerous or not? Well, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if that's all you do and you, and you don't have a girlfriend or, or, or a wife, because it's mostly guys that do this, uh, or your wife leaves you and or you lose your job because you're watching porn at work, you got a problem. <laughs> but on the other hand, if you enjoy porn and your and your spouse loves porn and it, it makes for a great sex life, you don't have a problem, right? right. It's kind of sort of defined by how it affects somebody, may, which may be different for somebody else watching the same amount of porn. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Part, you know, that... I, that idea of addiction is it's very context dependent, it seems. Yeah. And based on, I would even say interpretation, like, especially when it comes to depression, it really just depends on how the person is seeing the world, which is why like CBT is so important because sometimes let's say if you're watching porn and I don't know, let's say your partner walks in and it's like, Oh my God, you're cheating on me. You must, you must think I'm ugly. And like, this person is gorgeous, right? Of course you're going to get super depressed or at least, you know, it's going to sustain depression. Yeah. Whereas if another right. person walks in and watches you watching porn and they're like, hey, I want to join you, right? You have a whole different outcome. <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> outcome, definitely. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, boys, on that, right. let's, let's, end on, let's end on porn. That's a great, great <laughs> All right. So, Alan, what? final question. Final yeah. question for Michael before we go. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, so skeptic.com is the main page for, for the magazine and then michaelshermer.com and on Amazon, you type in my name, my books are all there. And, and the Michael Shermer show, it's just, uh, it, it, you can find it at skeptic.com. That's who hosts it. Yeah. And I want to just advise really quickly for everybody to check out the episode that Michael just did with um, Daniel Dennett and Greg Caruso on free will. Really yeah. awesome episode. Oh, thank you. Yes, that was, it was long. Yeah. You know, yeah. When philosophers get when philosophers get into the weeds with their thought experiments. My, my, my eyes kind of glaze over. I'm like, well, uh, 15 minutes ago, I, I, where are we now? I've lost the yeah. thread. Yeah. And, and I really appreciate, and I really appreciated your work in clarifying. 
So that was really important <laughs> for me in watching it. Thank you. Thank All right, Michael. Thank you so, right, so much for coming so much. on. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, All let right, me so know when you post it and I'll, we'll, we'll share it on social media. Awesome. Thank you so it. much. Take we'll talk care. to you soon. All right. Bye. All right. Ooh, that was awesome. That was epic. Awesome. That was epic. All right, guys. If you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Like, subscribe, hit the, hit bell. the bell. And, and thank you, of course, for watching. See you guys next time.